This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2117, Dance, Lies, and Videotape, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2117, Dance, Lies, and Videotape. And on the program, we are pleased to welcome the legendary John Waters. And he sits down and discusses his cameo with us, along with our old friend, Peter Scanavino. After that, we have part one of Peter Scanavino answering questions from the fans. And finally, the co-writer of Dance Lies and Videotape, Brendan Feeney, and director Leslie Hope, join me to talk about the challenges of making an episode of SVU that is set in the world of ballet. All this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which, as always, is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. I'm in The Squad Room with the legendary John Waters. And the also legendary Peter Scott. I don't think I'm quite as legendary, legendary, but I appreciate that. Well, you are, but legendary means old. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) In certain contexts, not in this one. Not Not in this one. one. It's really an honor to meet you and Thank to have you, you on much. here. Thank you. Yeah. So I guess tribute buffs will know that this is not your first real Law & Order because you did an episode of Homicide, which yep. was a crossover. It was called Law & Disorder. That's right. That's right. Oh. I knew I did Homicide. That's when Barry Levinson uh, yeah. was directing it and right. producing it. Yeah. So tell me about the role of Floyd and your scene that you guys did together. How, well, how was it? typecast, I guess. <laughs> Real stretch me to play a porn director. Porn, porn monger. <laughs> porn monger. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It was great fun to do it, you know. And uh, only every once in a while I try to do things that people wouldn't expect, like they might see me in this. I was in the Alvin the Chipmunk movie. I was in the Chucky movie. I get recognized only on the subway for being in that. Really? So we'll see which audience I get recognized <laughs> from doing this. This has a much more hugely wide audience. It's kind of amazing. Right. Yes. And what was happening in the scene for you? You were talking to Floyd about... Um, well, yeah, you know, we're trying to get him to take down a video that we say has received an official complaint. There's some constitutionality issues that he kind of fires back on us, and then I come back at him with this other thing. But it was a really fun scene to do, and John was, was cracking me up at the end of uh, every take with his very nuanced and ever-changing looks <laughs> at the end of every take. It was hilarious to watch. Well, did... It was about revenge porn, and I've seen a lot of porn, but I've never seen revenge porn. Right. It's one thing that I've never <laughs> typed in. <laughs> so your line is, um, nothing disappears from the internet. It gets pirated, goes airborne, and mutates like the plague. As you're both public figures. What do you think about things that appear about you on well, the Well, I've internet? never done a nude video. <laughs> yeah, I haven't either. Um, Even with boyfriends, girlfriends, anything. It's never, not a wise move. Never. Because, never. You never know. Yeah, I think you never operate know from that principle that nothing, stays, nothing yeah. stays private these days. Yeah. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, I, I think that's true, and I, I feel very grateful to have grown up in a time where I didn't have my childhood and, you know, all my fuck-ups posted online and there's there's no record of it, you know what I mean? That's a very kind of difficult place to live in. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that's true, that these things are forever. Yeah, that's, I mean, the internet is scary about your privacy eventually. And that's what this is about, that, you know, kids routinely, supposedly in high school, take sexy pictures and send it to each other. 
really be careful because I'm always amazed when I look at a website like Chatterbait, which is one that makes me laugh, where people go on to make money and pose naked. But then I always think, when you look at something, isn't that bill and receiving at work? (laughs) (laughs) Because employers go online and see if they Google your name and stuff. And if it comes up, you're on Chatterbait. I don't know. I think think it may be colors your job application. This episode ends with Delia being like, my life is ruined because every time someone Googles me, they will see this video. Yeah, but you know what? I feel like here's the flip side of it. As it becomes more pervasive, I think people are more understanding of people that have been put in that position and they're less judgmental of it in a way too. Where I think especially now in terms of revenge porn, no one looks at that as like, oh, how embarrassing. I think most people look at that and say, what piece of shit would put this up there? That <laughs> right. uh, the blame is but not. But they still on the look. They still look. That's yeah. the difference. And depending what you're doing on it, I feel like, and I hope that the novelty of it, since it's not such a rare thing, where it's like, ooh, it's a celebrity sex tape right. now. It's like, well, what is that? It was just something that had never quite existed <laughs> before. But now people, are, I don't need to see that. Even my curiosity is not right. really piqued by this. Hopefully, yeah, it, it could knows? go that way. Who knows? It could go. So what is it about acting that you enjoy? Um, acting just to surprise my audience that would never maybe expect to see me on this or to see me. It's not something I pursue. Like, I don't audition. Right. I've never done an audition. Well, you I really mean, would not need to audition for this part. I but, mean, it, I mean, if somebody <laughs> wants to do me and they, you know, I was on The Simpsons. I have a reel. I mean, <laughs> I can send you my reel. I don't know how up-to-date it is, but I'll put this on it, definitely. <laughs> so, um, usually, it's a cameo. Like, I would never want to star in a, in a movie. I would never want to have a main part in it because I'm not that good an actor. That's not what I do, first of all. That's not what I'm pursuing in my life. But I like, you know, SAG pays my insurance. I work enough, so I qualify for SAG. That's a good thing. There you go. And will you be directing more features? Who knows? They keep paying me to write them. And uh, I keep doing them, and they pay me, and they don't make them. I'd never make a movie that I didn't write. I never have, and I never will. But who knows? I'm not saying no. We're talking about animating one one of the ones I have now. I've written four sequels to Hairspray they never made. So I keep going out and do the porn version. (laughs) So, Peter, do you want to direct... Yeah, I'd like to eventually do it, but I think that's kind of one of the things where if you just glance at it, you go, oh, yeah, that looks fun, I'd like to do it. But then when you really drill down on what that actually takes, it seems more of a daunting task. Um, so You'll I think I would have like a free moment. <laughs> exactly. You don't even get lunch. You know, exactly. <laughs> and I think when you're envisioning it, you're just kind of imagining the best parts of it, but there's so much organizational things that you have yeah. to do. And um, But I, w- I would like to at some point. Would you ever want to direct episodic television like this? No, I wouldn't because to me, the most fun of making movies is thinking it up. So writing it, that's what I really am as a writer. I've written all my movies, all my books, my stand-up shows. Everything I do is about thinking it up and writing it. So to me, to take someone else's script, I think I'd be bad at it. I I don't really (laughs) know how to do that because whenever I'm directing, people laugh at me and imitate me. I'm mouthing the dialogue uh, when I'm in Video Village watching it. Uh, I'm mouthing the dialogue because I wrote it. So when people come in to read for me, I've been playing those characters in my mind for a year. So sometimes they just do it right. I don't know how. They know, and I know because I wrote them. Right. And so I have such a different feel for it if I wrote it. I'm much better, like, I can memorize a 70-minute monologue, which I do all the time, constantly change it with no notes and do the show. I had eight lines. That was harder for me than to memorize 70 (laughs) minutes that I wrote it. Because when you wrote it, 
it's just in you. But when it's someone else's dialogue, and I like the dialogue, I'm not yeah. saying that. I'm not great at memorizing dialogue. Yeah, Brendan, who wrote the episode, when I said what your was your favorite scene to write, he said it was your scene. Good, um, good. Do you have any sense of why he would think that? He's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think if you had a direct work to direct a movie now in the age of social media and stuff, would you approach it differently? No. You mean, I always like rehearsal. When I made a movie, I always had a rehearsal for a week in my house before we started because I never had the budgets to, let's try this. Uh, I, I don't have the budgets for that. And when I got my Writers Guild Award, I did make a joke saying that I'm against actors that always say, oh, the first thing I do is throw the script at. Really? Then join the, <laughs> then join the Writers Guild. Say the words that are on there. Right. <laughs> And what was your awareness of John Waters growing up? And you were growing up in Colorado, right? Yeah. Um, I uh, Were his movies well, I there? Was just, I was just telling uh, John, when I was in high school, I was a punk rocker for halfway through my junior year. Then I kind of switched to greaser and rockabilly stuff. And I remember my friend Andy said, oh, you got to go look at, watch this movie Cry Baby. There's yeah. some great greaser style in there. And Johnny Depp's got an amazing pompadour. Right. <laughs> I remember all, watching this that. This all true. I knew that, but I also, you know, I remember seeing uh, Packer when it came came out and Pink Flamingos and not one came out but um, so I was aware of John Waters yeah for a while. I saw Crybaby in the movies too because I was a little rockabilly kid it was a as flop as well. in the movies it was a big flop when it, it came doesn't out. matter but yeah I mean I guess it but matters. it's still it playing more money, it but mattered now, then it's a thing, yeah, it you know? mattered then because they opened it in 1600 theaters and Johnny at the time was like Justin Bieber you know it was this huge teen yeah. idol because of 21 was, Jump Street right. and his that girl was his first all film, the fans right? they smelled a rat me Right. And they were correct because we were making fun of that genre. Uh So they instantly knew something was wrong. Now, later, I say today, no matter, even with Hairspray, more people have probably seen Crybaby than any movie I ever made because of television and Johnny Depp all over the world. Right. So I think probably more people have seen it than anything. So was there anything fun that happened today when you guys were working together or meeting each other or just... Well, they were Funny. very supportive. They yeah. were very supportive. <laughs> I was really happy because he forgot one line before I did. So I felt at ease because I'm always, I'm always, I'm always <laughs> afraid that I'm going to screw up all the lines. So I'm so, if, no, I'm, no, I'm going to say somebody I'm, makes one mistake. John, I'll tell, I'll tell you this in all honesty. You were messing up lines much less than people usually do. Really? <laughs> so well, you were totally prepared and fantastic. <laughs> well, I try to be prepared, but you know, you always know them when you're home, your lines. Oh, yeah. It's when well, you that's get the whole thing. in. When the first time. Right. Yeah. When and then someone, there's a camera right here and yeah. they're going, you're like, mm-hmm. no, I always find what I do is like, what? my hands seem very strange to me. And they say action. And I go, huh. What are these things? This sto- this and what story. do I usually do with these? Do I put them in my pot? No, what's, what's, how, do, how are these natural, you know? And you start it still cramming. Yeah. Wow. It's wow. When the camera is right there and you realize everybody's like, okay, go. Yeah. Do your job. Yeah, and you like, you just become hyper aware sometimes. Not all the time, but you just get in your head. You become hyper aware of, oh, I could destroy this take at any moment. And <laughs> Gorby Dow said the hardest part of acting was he said, I'd know my lines, but then the other person would answer me. <laughs> not have to say something back, which really makes me laugh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, John Waters, thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you for having me. It was really a fun experience. Yeah. And it's only noon. It's only midnight. I know, right? We've got a full day. <laughs> we got done early. Thank you. And Peter, thank you. Yeah, of course. We recently let SVU fans know that they could send in their questions for Peter Scannavino, and we received many responses. I want to thank you for your submissions. Obviously, we can't get to all of them, but we sat down with Peter to answer some of the questions you asked. 
the squad room with Peter Scanavino. We're going to dig into these questions from the fans on Twitter, and we're going to get to as many as we can. Let's go for it. In our time together. But this is a busy guy, so he's got read-throughs and things to do. My first question, is there anything different on Carisi's desk now that he's no longer sitting in the squad room? Not really. So I'll just get into a little backstory. I never really had much on my desk at all for whatever reason. So towards the end of last season, the prop guy, Angelo Procia, is awesome. And he's got three beautiful children. And I said, you got to give me some photos. So give me some photos of your daughters. And then he also gave me a photo of him and his cousins and his brothers. And they're all these bald Italian guys from the Bronx. So those are the photos (laughs) that are on my uh, desk. And if you can ever catch them in a scene, you should take a look. And that's one of the crew guys' family. Now that Carisi has had his first trial and won, What's the next big thing that you want for him? More trials, longer trials. You just want more. You know, because even in that trial, there wasn't an actual whole lot of courtroom. Right. So I would kind of like to uh, have an episode that's a real court battle, you know, with the ups and downs that go along with that and, you know, a nice summation at the end. Almost Uh, like a half hour, like the old law and order kind of thing. Maybe, you know. A couple of those would be good because um, I feel like maybe Carisi's getting his feet under him in the courtroom as kind of I am as an actor as well because that's a whole different setting for me and it's kind of fun to explore because you're playing to the jury, you're playing to the judge, you're playing to the defendant, you're playing to the gallery. So it's a completely different style than being a detective. In Swimming with the Sharks, you had a great scene with Hadid, which Martha Mitchell directed, right. which is the two of you interrogating somebody. And, and you guys did a little almost like a cop, bad cop. Oh, routine. right, 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 with the and, grand jury. Yeah, and I thought that right. was that just had a different look and style to it. I didn't. Did you approach it differently? or No, it didn't uh, approach it differently at all. I mean, that kind of lent itself to a more casual thing because it was in a preparation. It wasn't yeah. actual. So, you know, taking the coat off and everything. I haven't seen the scene. Um, it came out I great. Remember, I remember it, doing it. But, yeah. It's kind of nice. That's kind of the springing the trap where you're setting the person up because yeah. you know they're lying. And we had obviously talked about it before, I think, Hadid and Carisi. And here's how we're going to do it. And then we're going to pin her. It had a really nice rhythm to it. And okay, I, I didn't good, know if, like, uh, someone had told me Martha's really good at courtroom scenes. So it came across that way. Great. Next question. What characteristics of Sonny do you relate to most? I think Sonny is a very loyal person and once he's accepted you as a friend or somebody that he cares about he's going to be with you to the end he's ride or die and I think I'm kind of like that I hope I am you know the people that are close to me I hold them very closely and I, I care a lot about them and within that they have a lot of leeway to do things and it's like all right I'm not going to write you off because you are one of my people you know right. so I think he's like that and I am too to an extent and you play it like that I mean, that's a kind of a hard thing to play, but yeah. it's just a nice thing to know right. in the back of your mind. You know, you fight the hardest with the people you care the most about because you know you have the safety that we have a relationship. Right? This relationship will survive, and because of that, we're able to go really all out at each other and stuff. Right. How much input does Peter have on Carisi's ADA wardrobe? I got to give credit to where credit's due. Uh, Julia Polksa was the uh, is the costume designer, so she came up with a lot of this. But I think she suggested three piece suits, and I said, "Oh, I really like three piece suits and waistcoats." And you know, there were little things like, "What kind of shoes do you want to wear?" And I was like, "Oh, I love Alden's. Alden shoes are kind of the 
They're great. They're extreme. Yeah. In fact, one of my first paychecks on this show, I'd always wanted a pair of Alden Lisa boots, and I went and bought a pair, like 700 bucks. <laughs> yeah, they're and they're expensive. And they're in store yeah. Madison Avenue, which is funny because there's an episode in this season where a character looks down at my shoes and goes, ADA, your shoes say detective. And I always wish the line was, oh, really? Because you don't know much about shoes. Because these are $900 Aldens. <laughs> but, um, Lakira. Yeah you, yeah, you, yeah. you don't know much about quality handmade <laughs> footwear from Boston, do you? But I, I love the way that uh, I get dressed. Yeah, looking good. Next question. What kind of relationship do you think Creasy has with his mentor, which I believe is Barbara, now that he's filling these shoes? With his mentor, now that he's filling these shoes. I always saw Creasy as a great admirer of Barba and saw him as a fantastic lawyer that he had the deepest respect for. But I don't know if that was always a two-way street. Mm. I think there were a lot of zings thrown towards Creasy that he just kind of stomached because he thought Barbara was such a great ADA. But I don't know if there was like a lot of affection right. going the other way in that. But I think maybe now, I think you definitely would not hesitate for two seconds to call Barbara or seek his advice on something. And I could totally imagine them, you know, having dinner to discuss certain cases. Right. But I don't think it's the thing where he's, you know, calling Barbara every day to, to discuss, you know, what's going on. If you could bring any past character back, who would it be and why? Any past character? Yeah. Um, who, who are you missing? I miss Mike Dodds. I miss uh, Andy Carl. You know, I thought he was so good on the show and he was such a good friend and actor. And I felt like there was kind of a bond with him and, and Crazy. There was I, one moment where I can't remember the episode, but he would seem really upset. And Crazy was like, hey, Sarge, you okay? You know? So, um, I just thought that was such a sad ending, <laughs> you know? I don't that, know if that question meant bring them back from the dead, <laughs> but... Uh, is that is that more um, for you or for Carisi? I think both. both. Yeah. I think both, you know? What part of Carisi's personal life do you want to explore more? I think there's a lot to explore. And I think if you were to ask Carisi when he was 25, where do you think you're going to be when you're 40 or late 40s? I think he'd probably say, I'm happy in, in my career, whatever I was trying to do. But I bet he would also say, I'm married, I've got five kids, and I got a big Italian family. And I think that doesn't exist for Carisi. And I think that is a point of sadness for him, which is why he is so committed to the job. But I think there are some moments where there are these things that he wishes were happening. You know what I mean? And maybe an element of him that, you know, he's tired of waiting for life to happen to him. So I think there's something there that he wants personally, but it's not quite coming together for him. So you kind of want Creasy to have some of the things that Peter Scanavino has. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely do. Especially because I can see in my own personal life how those things can enable such profound happiness and the depth of my experience as a human being has just gotten so much greater. And um, I see Creasy can this, you'd be like a great dad. I, yeah. I see him as, as all these things. I mean, you've been pretty open on the podcast about how uh, important family is to you and you mm -hmm. don't want to work elsewhere because you treasure that time with your right. young kids and stuff. And so, particularly now when they're, they're young. Yeah, soon they're not going to want you around. Yeah, they'll and, be and like, please leave. Like, and I'll be like, can I get a snuggle? They're like, dad, get away from me. <laughs> and then you'll do that indie then, movie. Not yet, that's right. Then or I'll make your that. rockabilly record. <laughs> what do you do to get into character, particularly with your voice? Um, 
expand on the New York accent because we have our own things about when people do a New York accent. Right. Um, well, I mean, for me with the accent, it was when I first started the show, I didn't do it as much. And I had the mustache and I wore these these big baggy suits. Yeah. And I was like, I can't do it as much. But then around the third, fourth episode, they shaved off the mustache and they put me in kind of nicer suits. And I basically kind of said, I'm going to ramp it up a little bit more. And it's also, I was kind of getting in with the show. And, you know, I had this one particular teamster that had a very thick New York yeah. accent. And uh, I was like, oh, I think it could be like that. Let me keep going. And nobody really told me to stop. And then it got thicker and thicker. And then it just kind of is what it is now. So that's how that kind of uh, developed. And I think it's cool. It allows me to do a real character. And it's surprising in New York, you know, there are people, I mean, there's, there are stronger New York accents than Chrissy oh, yeah. does, oh, you yeah. know? Like, I've always said that the one was, you know, if you go full out, instead of bathroom, you say the bathroom. Yeah. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Yeah. You know, I don't go that far. Right, right, <laughs> That would be right. a little too much. Does someone teach you or are you just kind of doing an impression and then no. make it into your thing? No, you just kind of start doing it. And then you find your own. If you're on the show for this long, you start finding your own kind of rhythms and cadences. And sometimes it's rough. You'll do, you know, take and you only get a couple chances at it. And everything else works on the shot. But I'll know, like, oh, I didn't hit that. Yeah. Word sometimes you're like, ah, but you can't go back. I'm, in fact, just today I had one where I was like, oh, I didn't hit that <laughs> right. That was weird. Or like, it'll go Boston or something. You just, <laughs> just got to go with it. <laughs> well, Peter Scandavino, thank you so much for answering the fans' questions. Yeah, of course. And we'll be back with you soon for part two. Writer Brendan Feeney and director Leslie Hope both did an admirable job of bringing the world of ballet into the SVU matrix. We talked with them about some of the challenges they faced and some of the fun that they had. I'm on the squad room with Leslie Hope and Brendan Feeney, and we are talking about Dance Lies and Videotape. And obviously you are playing with the Soderbergh there. And why did you uh, choose that title? Well, it's 21 letters. So Besides that. that's kind of... <laughs> really? Is that how it goes? Yeah, all oh, you your titles know about the are 21 letters. No, I had no that's idea. Season 21 rule. That worked out really well. And obviously it's a nice little play on, on yeah. that title. And that was what struck me about it first because videotape turned out to be a pretty large part of the storyline, even more so with the finished product than it was when we originally pitched it. So it accidentally, the title ended up being more poignant than it was oh, meant good. to be at first. At first it was just kind of like a clever play on that title. Yeah. But the videotape element of the story really was kind of teased throughout the whole thing as opposed to initially we just started a videotapes and we kind of moved on to other things, which we still do, but the videotape portion remained throughout yes. as a through line. Yes, it does. So talk about the genesis of this idea and where it came from. Well, actually, Masharn had pitched it a while ago as just... She had an idea for something set in the ballet world, but it was almost kind of like a bottle episode in that it was all contained within a theater, and it was kind of like a whodunit that played out in real time. And while that idea that didn't does, kind of make it all the way through... very good. They, yes. what, <laughs> Excellent. What, what Warren and Julie were really drawn to is something set in the world of ballet because it's just not an avenue we've tread down too often. I don't know if ever, at least I can't think of an episode since I've been here. So it was an interesting world to explore. And so Masharn had pitched it, and then my wife is actually a ballet dancer. And so I have some insight into what goes on there. Oh. So I hitched my star to her wagon, or however that saying goes. And we just kind of took it from there. 
So there's two ballet experts in the writing team. Yeah, Micharn yeah. went to a performing arts high school, and then I've been following my wife around doing this now for a <laughs> while, so. So the teaser, which is something I was involved with, uh, if you could both expand on kind of what you were trying to set up there and the world you were trying to create and just what we were trying to do musically and all how all that connected. We can talk a little bit about that because I'm not a ballet expert. And while I'm sort of fascinated with the world and the visuals of that world, the very clear directive for us was not to make something too fussy or fuddy-duddy or in any way alienating to somebody who might not be interested in ballet per se. So we had to do a few things. We had to set up a world quickly for a teaser that says, hey, watch this episode. We had to take it away from a more formal ballet idea. And frankly, with budget constraints, we couldn't do a full-blown performance. It was set as a, a rehearsal. So part of the challenge for us was how do we make this world quickly, introduce it, make it something that you want to stay tuned for after the commercial break, and hook this sort of audience into this world and not make it something that repels you. So not only was it rehearsal, but the idea of making it a modern version of ballet with a modern overlay to it, that it wasn't fussy and old-fashioned tutus like the ballerinas on the music box, but that it was modern, youthful, and with a driving beat to a classical song, which is where you came in. Right, when my <laughs> phone rang. So where did the idea that the music needed to be modern, where does that come from? Is that from you or is that from the producers? Or It was a group decision ultimately because there was a fine line to walk to. Originally, because of production restraints, it was just going to be kind of them practicing their final bow and that was really all you were going to see. And then upon you know thinking about that, well, that seems like a missed opportunity because if you're setting this in the ballet world, you're going to want to see flashes of that. Yeah. Otherwise, it could be anything. But like Leslie said, you don't want to alienate people who otherwise might not be super interested in ballet, but they are going to be interested in the characters and the story and the crime and the investigation and all of that. You know, people who are perhaps much more familiar with these professional ballet companies might see this and think, well, this is a little modern. This is not kind of something that realistically a company like that would do. But you kind of have to take in all these different competing interests and ultimately come up with what's going to work best for the show and for the scene. And then you had mentioned to me that there's some another challenge is that there's no main cast in the teaser. Did I hear you correctly? Uh, you well, said? you're correct. None of the regular players in the teaser. So we're trying to grab people quickly with all new faces. And part of that is the spectacle of what they're looking at, which is this beautiful dance routine, which was also pulled together in 20 seconds yeah. by <laughs> Gabrielle, who was extraordinary. Is it hard to do the teasers without main cast? I mean, you do it often, right? We do. I mean, it's every once in a while we are allowed to kind of do what we call a broken POV teaser, yeah. which is just it's, it's our guest cast exclusively, and you don't see any of our guys until the start of the first act. And we just kind of like to vary it. So we do like the A, B teasers where there's the two, there's our guys and then there the, there's a guest cast and we kind of, right. you know, we mishmash that together. But every once in a while, the story calls for something just a, from point A to point B is all the guest cast because otherwise it would just kind of interrupt the action unnecessarily. Yeah. Does that put pressure on you as a director? No more than usual. Okay. I mean, you're just always <laughs> under pressure. Yes, you're always <laughs> under pressure. Yeah. Uh, so Alistair and Sasha are very mean in the teaser, kind of in a shades of whiplash, I thought. Yeah. You know, obviously trying to set that up. Is that typical of the world you're in? Yes. That kind of cruelty? It's, it's, it's definitely a management style that's employed often. And it's this theory that everybody constantly has one foot in the grave. And so I do think that that's accurate to that world, especially with regards to 
the female dancers. Right. Because something that we explore throughout the episode is that there are 20 female dancers to every one male dancer. And so within the world of ballet, they are kind of conditioned to think that they are replaceable at any moment. Right. That's a major part of your story That's and right. yes. one of the main reasons they do some of the things they do. Right? Yes. So Alistair is friends with Barba? They're, they... Uh, <laughs> They've met each other socially a few <laughs> times. They kind of exist in the same world. Who works at it? Is that a Warren and Julie thing? or We kind of went back and forth. The struggle we had here is the people who are currently in our squad room are not going to know anything about that world. Right. Even Kat, who went to a performing arts high school, isn't really too well-versed in the, the intricate goings-on of one of these ballet companies. Right. So we kind of had to reach out and see who could introduce us to this. And Barbara He's kind of an I easy, believe that. He was I buy that. one to yeah. pull from, yeah. You also have, I mean, the way you get there is with Benson and Noah, right? I mean, that's... that's yeah, that, that's our, how our tenuous connection to the crime is that Noah's dance instructor also worked with... Delia, who is the right. our, our, Do our we first get to victim. Say who that is? <laughs> we we can, yeah. It's played by Allie Sachs, who is my wife. Oh what? wow! Yeah, and there's another the plot yeah. thickens. Yeah, and there's another thing that we're going to get to later that's special about this episode for me, besides the music. So the scene where Delia is starting to figure out something's happening because of thirsty fathers mm-hmm. staring at her and they're looking at their phones. How, how do you go about directing a scene like that without making people know something's wrong, but not? being super clear. Um, Many times for me on a show like this, the locations help decide how best to tell the story. So we were fortunate enough to be able to shoot at Alvin Ailey, which has beautiful views out across New York, plus a huge wall of mirrors. And the notion that this character could see something peripherally behind her, a glimpse of, was really facilitated by the mirrors, for one. And the line of dads, who in this case were background performers, and that's always something to sort of be navigated a little bit, like how to direct people that you're not technically really supposed to be directing to be subtle. And oh, you can't you can't tell extras what, not really. what to do? No, that's really the that. purview of the assistant director. I mean, you can generally speak, but you can't sort of tease out or actively direct performance because then they're actors. And it's a a whole different thing that happens when that goes on. So in this case, me working in conjunction with the AD, with the assistant director, to talk to that group of dudes who came in and me to make a point of whenever I'm saying something, saying it loudly so everyone can overhear me. Right, right. What I want them to do. Screaming here. Yeah, Yeah. and (laughs) also you're looking at something. You want want a subtle enough uh, action so that it doesn't directly pull the attention in a creepy way. And yet it needs to be flagged um, right. by Delia. But a lot of that was informed very specifically because of the space and the opportunities it provided. The mirrors, big space, guys could be in the background just with their phones and we could know that something was going on. And do you feel like you were able to achieve what was on the page? I, I hope so. Yeah. I think so. I, I, I can jump in and say yes. <laughs> and, and to elaborate a little bit, it does make Leslie's job a lot harder because that portion of the scene is very important. Right. We need to clock these dads looking and ogling at Delia, looking at their phones, and kind of get the idea of what it is that they're looking at. But like she said, she wasn't allowed to cast them because they are background actors. So it's a difficult situation, but I think they did a great job, and I think everyone involved in getting that out of them did a great job as well. So once Delia figures out what has happened, that gets us over to John Waters, who is the ageless porn merchant named Floyd with a pencil-thin mustache. Yes. (laughs) 
is there anyone else that could play that part? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Well, I mean, just, and it's really something that doesn't happen too often here. And we have the opportunity, like, you know, the scene is written a certain way, but the first person we went out to for it and the only person we thought who could actually play it was John Waters, and he actually said yes. And so now the scene is just going to become whatever it's going to become. Yeah. And, and it's Iconic. just John Waters yeah. is going to take over, and, and it's going to be very exciting to, to watch. I was so thrilled when I heard that. So then Floyd gets you to the next level of questioning, and you're starting to figure out what's happening what in the story, and that this has been going on for a long time, and it's kind of a terrible tradition at the, uh, oh, at the, the National. National. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But no one will give up anyone because of their fear of being removed from the National, right? Is that basically— Yeah, not only do they not— give anyone up. They just don't really cooperate in any way, shape, or form. They're just not interested. Right. Because they've got their own troubles at the company, Whether you know, depending on which character we're talking about. And they've got their own interests at heart. And it's much more important to them to remain in the company than it is to litigate this issue. Right. And when you're directing the actors in those situations where they're unwilling to cooperate with the police, what do you need from them? I think it depends on the scene, depends on the actor, but I'm also trying not to overload them with every piece of information from the get. So we're learning to work with each other too. And so it's often very evident, let's say, that something may not be working right right away, but try and take one step at a time in terms of overlaying the next piece of information, because I think particularly for younger actors, it's a bit of an overload um, sometimes. That being said, they're all super pro and they're all super emotionally available. So I think the thing that they have in front of them the most to overcome is permission, right? To try <laughs> right. Um, without, without fear of reprisal or failing in some way. So as we move into the story, Rollins and Carisi are talking now. No one's really giving them the information they need. And they're talking about what they could be charged with. And there was this line, tech lobbies, corporations, and civil libertarians all got their fingerprints on the state's revenge porn bill. It's basically toothless. What does that mean? Well, so what has existed forever before this revenge porn law we're talking about is dissemination and unlawful surveillance. So unlawful surveillance is any recording of someone without their knowledge or by means of, you know, surreptitious cameras or whatnot. And that is a felony. Then taking that, knowing it's unlawful and sending it around to other people is also a felony. However, the revenge porn statute, which basically is exactly what it sounds like and it's when somebody – either sends something around to someone else or, in the case of our story, uploads it to an internet site for the express purpose of harassing or doing harm to that victim. So in our case, when it's just a couple of guys sending it around to each other for their own ridiculous uh, entertainment, it's very hard to prove that their intent was to harass somebody. So not only is it very difficult to improve, but it's only a misdemeanor. So we figure out that we can get one of our guys on the actual felonies and the point we were making with that that bit that you read right there is – and this was something that we went through in the writing. It was very hard because Mashard and I kind of got a little too deep into the research wormhole and when that happens and you write the scene, you forget that not everybody did that exact same research and so people – you get lost in the weeds sometimes. Like and, me. And it's hard. <laughs> it's hard for the lay person who doesn't know much about the law to understand what it is that you're talking about. And so what we were saying with that is that, you know, revenge porn sounds gnarly. It sounds worse than, you know, unlawful surveillance and dissemination. That just sounds like legal jargon. Revenge right. porn sounds like something really bad and it is really bad and it should be really bad. But in the courts, it's not treated as bad because – it's difficult to prove, and it's only a misdemeanor. Gotcha. 
Okay. And it's because of those people throwing a First Amendment flag saying you can't infringe on my rights that you have to prove, har- prove harassment and it's not just a privacy violation. So technically, it is worse to reveal somebody's medical records than it is to upload a video of them having sex with someone against gotcha. their will. Straight male can't fail. Gay men, it depends, but girls in ballet do what we say. That's basically the whole episode, right? Yes. Well, I mean, just uh, I think we see those. I I see them, certainly, those parallels in all sorts of different jobs, um, even in the one that I'm in as a director, certainly as an actor. Benson makes that point, right? That's right. That's right. It's in so many fields where the upper tier tends to be largely peopled by straight men. And I think the next tier down tends to be men again, but gay. And then, you know, you go further and further down and you find the women. And it's just the way of the world as far as I see it. And I think we see that evidenced in any kind of, uh, almost any industry you can point to, you'll see that sort of tier or, or hierarchy. It's not to say it's not changing. It's not to say it's the, uh, I myself haven't experienced great opportunities and blah, 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 blah. But that's the way of the world. And it is particularly defined, I think, that I've learned anyway in, in ballet, where, as Brendan spoke to earlier, the women are replaceable. There's more of them, for one. So what this episode speaks to is not just the ballet world, but other fields where it's imbalanced. The genders are imbalanced and certainly colors imbalanced. But this particular uh, story addresses the gender imbalance. And no one really wants to do anything, so you go and find someone who maybe is not part of the national anymore, and that is Rose, who happens to be played by... Mm. Victoria Pollock. Victoria Pollock, who is my main help on this podcast and just the greatest. Um, How was she? She was fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely fantastic. uh, And she came into audition, and I just wasn't expecting her to walk through the door. I was in tears in the audition for her courage to come into that room with her bosses, uh, friends, colleagues, and audition, which is an incredibly brave act, particularly for that role, and to do it so beautifully and such professionalism and not diminish herself or the scene or uh, out of fear make fun of anything. She came in, she gave a terrific audition, and she uh, succeeded with flying colors, I thought she did Absolutely. a terrific job. I was hearing how great Marishka thought she was. Yes. Oh yeah, Marishka Victoria, was, you, was very, you know. very impressed. Yeah, you would know if she weren't. Right. She's, uh, right. She protects the show at all costs, and if Victoria, for some reason, wasn't able to deliver, we all would have known. So from that, we go into this kind of indecent proposal scenario, and we bring back Hasim, which Carisi seems annoyed about. Um, you've not worked with him before. I haven't, no. And he's wonderful. He um, is wonderful, yeah. yeah. How come he's back? Well, he's back because he was very, very good in the episode. He first appeared in episode 14. To interrupt, we all thought he was great, but do you guys wait for public perception on, on him? Uh, in this uh, instance, we did not, but it's a good thing that we didn't wait around for it because the public perception of him was was fantastic and he's been getting a yes, lot exactly. of, of good press and, and the, the Twitterverse was really into his performance and into that character and, and they liked the idea of this new sergeant kind of being pulled into into our world and it just, I think it worked out really well. He just, he brought a flavor to the room that I think we need. Yeah, I think he's great. What did you think of working with him? Oh, I loved him. I, I had seen the episode before it had aired, um, just as by means of introduction, here's the guy you're going to be working with. And uh, I loved him. And I um, I actually had to pull the reins back on cooking up 
a little bit more with Rollins and him because like, oh, here's something interesting. Easy. What about, yeah, easy, easy. Yeah, so I did a little, I, of course I did that the moment that Julie appeared on set. And I was like, okay, maybe two Lifetime movie, maybe I'll take it back over here. She's like, yes, please. Um, right. But I'm, I'm interested in what it does, those two people in a room together, just how they spark different things in each other. And I was also really interested in, he had to, can I speak directly about the scene where he's, he's, he's put in a situation where he's to behave as somebody that he's not. And it was staged in such a way so that we could see his private feelings in public, um, but nobody else could see them. Just the audience can see his his conflict or his worry. And, and he was really subtle and beautiful in that work. Plus, I think he's a really interesting person to look at. Yeah. You know, he's just, yes. got, a, he's yeah, just got an yeah. interesting face and um, his, his actual story is interesting, his real-life story, which he carries with him as an actor. Like, it, you feel where he comes from. Which Warren also incorporated into the character originally. Yeah. Right, which he's... He's been doing that with all the new characters. Warren's really great about, I think, making them bring it's something about kind of the same thing with Garland. Yeah, yeah they, exactly. They, they and, had a lot of conversations cat. about where this character is coming from, and they were pulling from their actual lives. So we'll see more of him in terms of farther down the line. I don't, I can't say for sure, but um, you know, he's worked out twice, and I don't see why he wouldn't work out again. There you go. So ultimately, um, as Nick Khan, he gets the job done, and. Uh, Alistair and Sasha are found guilty of rape and trafficking. And then after Ashley explains kind of what, mm-hmm. what happened. But in the end, Julia, we don't leave her in, a, in the greatest position or spot. And uh, that last scene I found very difficult because I really felt for her. And I just want to talk about why you chose to end the episode on such a downer. <laughs> Well, because, I mean, <laughs> again, you got you know, varieties of spice of life, right? So yes. you, some of the episodes were able to tie up in somewhat of a bow, and, yeah. and this one by its nature couldn't end that way because, yes, some people are brought to justice and the people who couldn't actually be charged with hard crimes are fired, and so they get their comeuppance in that way. But the reality is that this video is always going to follow Delia around. Yeah. And there was just no way around that aspect of her story. As the world knows, we, we didn't base this on anything in particular, but there are celebrities even whose private photos and videos were hacked and stolen and published, and that was six, seven years ago, and they're still fighting to get them taken down yeah. off of the internet. And any time that is attached to your name, it's going to be the first thing that pops up. Because at one point we say in the video that nothing dies on the internet. And every part of her that actually makes Delia a person, everything besides that video, it's just going to be buried under links and links of clickbait. And that's just kind of, that's the way it is. It's sweet. And there's no happy ending in yeah. that. It's a, it does a disservice not just to the episode but to the reality of that situation to say, but, you know, tomorrow's another day and I'm going to be okay. Actually, no, she's not going to be okay. Yeah. yeah, She will survive and she will find her way through life as she grows into an adult and la, la, la. But that part of her, she never gets back. She never will get back. And it would be glib to suggest otherwise. And even, <clears throat> I don't know how it's ultimately going to end up, but we shot it traditionally with the face of Mariska looking at her and feeling compassionately for this, what's happened to her. And we did another version where Mariska leaves the scene and there's this young girl by herself, very small in the frame, that's sort of 
I'm a little hopeless. And, and that's what I'm gunning for, because I think that's actually the story. It's, it's more yeah. realistic. And unfortunately, you know, not only is this video going to follow her around, but it ruined the only dream she'd ever had. It's terrible. And because now ballet is irrevocably associated with that cool. video, and there's no way for her to separate that in her mind. And like she says, every time she's up on stage now, she's not going to think that people are looking at her because they're interested in what she's doing on stage. They're looking at her because they've seen... Right. Her in this incredibly vulnerable and private situation, and that's all they're replaying in their mind. And there's just, I don't know how one gets around that feeling. And so we just kind of played it out that way because that's the reality. Well, Leslie Hope and Brandon Feeney, thank you so much for coming on The Squad Room, talking about this great episode, and I uh, hope to see you both soon. Thank you, Thank Anthony. you. Thanks right. for having us. That's a wrap for The Squad Room. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a thing. As always, we love hearing from you. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf. And The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. This episode was recorded by Joe Tisdale and Jessica Damari. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto. And we would like to extend a huge thank you to Victoria Pollock for all of her help. As always, The Squad Room is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. And we'll see you next week.